Uh, there are Bibles in the foyer if you need them, and there is an outline uh, <coughs> in the bulletin. And, uh, I think things have settled outside. It's quite interesting. In the morning congregation at nine, uh, we had 20 in uh, youth, Sunday youth. In this congregation, we've just had 20 in three and four year old. Um, three and four year old kinders, so there's a fair bit of turmoil out there. Uh, but uh, I think that's all settled now. Let's ask God to help us understand his word. Our true and living God, we do thank you that we can meet. We thank you that we can return from holidays and other things and catch up with each other. And we thank you for the excitement of that. Uh, but we meet this morning around your word, your word which is true and sure, the word of life to us. And we pray now that you would quiet our hearts and let us listen to your word and to receive it as your word, the word of the living God. And help me in my weakness to speak it truthfully and clearly. And our Father, help us to hear you speaking, our Father, to us and to believe what you say and to take it to heart. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Drifting. Uh, what do you think of when you hear that word? Perhaps an aimlessness of life? Perhaps something you do with a motor car when you deliberately oversteer? Uh, that's actually something I discovered on YouTube uh, when I typed in that word. There's some pretty good videos, actually. Uh, perhaps it's uh, floating down the Upper Murray in a canoe or a lilo on summer holidays, carried along effortlessly and pleasantly. But you probably don't think danger, unless perhaps you're a sailor and you think of a vessel that's lost its mast and its steering gear and is at the mercy of the tides and currents of the ocean with no means to rescue itself. Now that's the kind of drifting the first readers of Hebrews would have thought of when they heard the author say, we must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. Drifting, a gentle, almost imperceptible movement at first, the silence slipping away from the mooring at the harbour and then, if it didn't bump into other moored craft, moving out into the current or tide, picking up speed, carried closer to shore by the incoming tide with the threat of being stranded or driven onto the rocks, or with the outgoing tide carried into the ocean, unprotected, unable to be pointed up into the wind, being swamped. Either direction, destruction threatened. Drifting is always ominous, requiring urgent action even if everything else seems calm. For a drifting boat is a danger to itself and all other craft. And with this call to pay careful attention to what believers had heard in the preaching of the gospel, and notice the author includes himself, he's a believer, so that we do not drift away, we get the first indication in the book of Hebrews of the circumstances of the first readers, the situation that Hebrews was written to address, the dangers it was written to present. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, is the first of what are called the warning passages of Hebrews, and they're listed in your outline. 
And if you've been reading Hebrews through, and I hope some of you are, you'll find that from the beginning to the end of the book, the author interweaves teaching about Jesus and what he's done with sections that call on his hearers directly to avoid some danger, to take some action that will secure their persevering in faith in Jesus, persevering to come to eternal life. And so here in chapter 2, he calls his hearers to be aware of the dangers of drifting and of neglecting or ignoring the salvation we have heard in the gospel. In chapter 3, he warns of being hardened by sin's deceitfulness, of having a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from God in disobedience and fails to enter God's promised rest, his eternal rest. In chapter 5 and 6, he warns of the risks of not going on, not maturing the faith, of falling away from following Jesus. In chapter 10, he speaks of the dangers of keeping on deliberately sinning by moving away from faith in and worship of Jesus, treating as an unholy thing, treating as common his sacrifice of himself on the cross. And in chapter 12, he speaks of people missing out on the grace of God by refusing God as he speaks to us in the gospel. Now, as we go through the book, we'll look at each of these passages in turn, but together they give us a sense of the kind of issues and temptations the author's hearers were facing. They seem to have been people who started well in the Christian life, willing in their early days to endure suffering for the joys of belonging to Jesus and willing to identify with other believers as those other believers experienced persecution. But now it appears some of his first hearers were wondering whether Jesus was worth it. The hostility of the wider pagan society was painful and impoverishing. The continuing pressure of their old community, the synagogue, was dulling their zeal, making life as believers wearisome. The opportunity for a quiet life back in the Jewish community of being accepted by their countrymen and enjoying the legal protections that synagogue community enjoyed was starting to look more and more attractive. And so some were starting to stay away from their fellow Christians to not want to be so closely identified with the Christian group. Others seemed to be finding the change in behaviour expected of them as followers of Jesus just a bit too much and they were being tempted back to their old ways. And so this was a group whose Christian lives had gone off the boil. They weren't maturing in understanding. Some were even thinking of walking away from Jesus, of giving up. Oh, perhaps they weren't saying that out loud explicitly, at least not yet. They were drifting, showing less interest, letting a bit of distance grow between them and other believers between them and the claims of the Christian gospel. Just drifting, loosening their connection to Jesus, neglecting the message, living as if it wasn't true. Perhaps you can identify at times just a little with what they're experiencing. And from these warning passages taken together, we also get a sense of the danger the author says threatens them, the danger from which there is no escape if they keep 
drifting. Verse 3, how shall we escape, writes the author, if we ignore, neglect, have no concern about so great a salvation? What won't we escape from if we drift away, if we neglect salvation in Jesus? Well, the author doesn't spell it out here in chapter 2. But as he goes on in these warning passages through the book, you realise that what he is speaking of is actually not escaping from condemnation in the judgment, not escaping from being amongst those excluded from God's eternal kingdom, not escaping facing God's wrath, not escaping all those things from which being saved by Jesus spares us. And so in chapter 4, say, the author warns of unbelief so that they won't fail to enter God's rest, God's eternal rest. In chapter 6, he warns so that none of his hearers will be amongst those who become like land that is fit only to be burned for its fruitless response to the kindness of God. In chapter 10, he warns so that none face the horror of facing God's judgment, falling into the hands of the living God. And at the end of the book, in chapter 12, he repeats what is said at the beginning. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we? How much less will we escape if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? Our God, who is a consuming fire. You see, the danger of drifting is not insignificant. It's not just remaining as an immature Christian or a fruitless believer or someone who doesn't know the fullness of the Christian life. No, the danger is failing to inherit eternal life, being exposed to a judgment and an eternal condemnation from which there is no escape if you abandon Jesus. And this warning God gives us in his word is actually a warning you and I need to hear and understand because let's face it, we know drift in our Christian community. Perhaps we sometimes sense it in ourselves. You know, getting tired, fed up with being the odd one out at work for Jesus' sake. Oh, a disinterest in keeping on learning more about Jesus. Perhaps a growing embarrassment about Christian truth, about what God says, say, about marriage or forgiveness. Not wanting to keep listening to the scriptures when it shows up how you fall short or conflicts with something you really want to do. That's drifting. Or perhaps you're finding an increasing reluctance to come and join Jesus' people, finding staying at home in bed or that weekend away with friends just so much more appealing, finding that you'd rather invest your time in things that, well, give you pleasure or make a profit or find more emotionally satisfying than loving and serving other believers. There is a real danger of drifting. In fact, the longer you live in the Christian life, the more and more you know that the temptations Hebrews addresses here and in this other warning passage, the other warning passages are not just theoretical. I think every one of us who's been a believer for some time have seen others, fellow believers, we thought, start to neglect the reality revealed in the gospel. We've known Christian friends, even Christian leaders who've been influential in our lives, 
who are no longer present in Christian congregations, no longer acting in service. And you're a friend and you go and ask them and, and they'll say, so sometimes they'll say, oh, I'm still Christian, oh yeah, I, I still approve of Jesus. But some of the things Christian believes, Christians believe they'll tell you about hell or same-sex practice being a sin, they'll say, oh, I, I can't agree with that anymore. Oh, you'll ask and they'll talk of their loneliness and then this really nice person they've met, oh, not a believer, they know, but... And then perhaps of the unfriendliness of the people in the church or how they just didn't click and why go? You'll ask and... Oh, they'll say they just became busy with other things and then they kind of didn't notice that meeting with other believers was missing and so they thought it couldn't have been all that important to them in the first place. That's some, some, yeah, they'll say still interested in Jesus, but oh, others say you'll meet and they won't even say that they're Christians anymore. They'll make it clear that they've moved on. Always, of course, they reckon they've moved on in progress, not moved backwards. You know, they'll say the more they got involved in, say, that campaign for equality, the less comfortable they were with Christian attitudes. And they realised that Jesus was just a man of his day, not Lord. Or the more they thought about scientific explanations of the universe, the less conviction they had about the gospel. Or the more they mixed with people from other religions, it just seemed so absurd that Jesus could be the only way and they moved on. What we're being warned of here is a real and known danger. Now, of course, when people we know move on, they may not be at risk of moving back into Judaism, the, the risk the first hearers of this letter experienced in their drifting. That's probably not the destination of our drifting, and that's part of the reason some of us from time to time find Hebrews a little abstract because let's face it, the argument of Hebrews is framed to show the first readers how much better Jesus is than anything they could experience in Judaism. How in the gospel of Jesus they've come to know a better priest, a better covenant, a better sacrifice. And so seeing that, that the argument is really to prevent people sliding back into Judaism, you might not think Hebrews addresses our issues, our drift. But think for a moment. The old covenant, Judaism and its practices in the temple, that was God-given. The author of Hebrews insists on it. So if turning your back on Jesus to go back to something God has given offers no hope, how much less hope will there be in those things we might be tempted to go back to? Turning your back on Jesus for things we've invented, you know, a, a civic religion, a, a polite moralistic Christianity, respectability without repentance where you can endorse your own vices and condemn those of others without insisting on the uniqueness of Jesus. You might be tempted to drift back to that or into a self-righteous paganism where your experience determines right and wrong for everyone or a trust in human reason or a, a worship of money or pleasure. If drifting back to what God has given leaves no hope, how much less hope is there in going back to these things you've invented? And the outcome will be the same for you if you leave Jesus as it is for those 
who left Jesus to go back to their former way of life in Judaism. You'll be left with no escape from judgment, no escape from the consuming fire of God's wrath. But you see, the book of Hebrews is written to prevent that from being the outcome for you. The book of Hebrews actually tells us how we can stay safe, how we can stay securely moored to Jesus, securely tied to eternal life. In fact, its teachings and warnings are the means God gives you to keep on trusting in Jesus, following Jesus, thankful for Jesus. And Hebrews tells us that the starting place for safety is grasping the greatness of Jesus. That's right. In verses 5 to 14 of chapter 1, the author expands and supports what he has already said of Jesus, the heir of all things through whom the world was created, the radiance of God's glory, the representation of his being, the one who upholds all things. He actually expands and supports what is already said of Jesus in verses 2 to 4. And notice that when trying to convince his hearers how important it is to hold on to Jesus, he doesn't start by rubbishing the alternatives. He doesn't argue first for the deficiencies of other positions. He starts with Jesus and his greatness. And that's always going to be true. For persevering conviction, start with Jesus. Showing somebody the errors in their position doesn't make Jesus right. It just makes them wrong. If you want people to trust Jesus, show that Jesus is right. Show that Jesus is great. Now this presentation of the greatness of Jesus in chapter 1 flows on from 1 verse 4 where the author introduces a comparison between Jesus and the angels. Jesus became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. Now, that might be a bit puzzling at first because you probably don't think much of angels. In fact, Peter Adams has remarked that actually demons have a greater presence in modern Christian consciousness and imagination than angels. But angels are real. They rescued Hagar, investigated Sodom, appeared to Moses, go before Israel in their wilderness wanderings. They minister to Elijah. They're present at, in the birth stories. They minister to Jesus after the temptation. They speak to the women at the tomb. Angels are real and angels are great. They execute God's judgments in history. So they smite the Assyrians surrounding Jerusalem. They communicate God's message to Daniel. They bring God's revelation to John. And it's also they who will execute God's final judgments. It's seven angels who blow the seven trumpets in Revelation. Oh, it's angels who will appear with our Lord at the end and reap the end time harvest. Angels are real, angels are great. And in the Judaism of this time, it was believed that the law was given through angels. So Stephen, speaking to the Sanhedrin, says, you who have received the law that was given through angels. Or Paul in Galatians, the law was given through angels. For the people of the time, the prestige of the law 
was bolstered. That's Moses' law that gives us all that information about sacrifice and priests and all that. The prestige of the law was bolstered by its delivery by angels. The angels meant it wasn't just some human invention, but from God through his powerful messengers. And its authority was supported by their activity. But God wants us to know how much greater the Lord Jesus, his son, is than the angels. So that we'll actually know how much greater the word he has spoken through his son to the word is to the word that he gave of old. So he wants us to see the difference between the son and the angels and to show us the son's greatness. The author strings together in chapter one, ooh, chapter one, uh, this string of quotes from the Old Testament. Now that's not surprising, is it? Because both he and his audience share the conviction that God has spoken in the past through the prophets. And so the Old Testament's the word of God and what God says about anything settles the matter. So he goes to God's word. And in, in bringing these references together, it's actually important for us to stand back to get the overall picture. You see, the author isn't asking you to cross-reference them, but to hear what he's saying, the totality of what he's saying of Jesus. And so you could think of chapter 1 like a mosaic. With a mosaic, to get the picture, you don't do that, do you, by focusing on each individual piece. You actually have to stand back and look at them all to get the impression of the whole. That's what you've got to do with chapter 1. Stand back, look at it all. So what's the picture of Jesus? that the author gives us from the Old Testament, from the word of God. And how does that compare with what God's word says of angels? Well, he says, For which, to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have become your father, or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. Jesus, tells us, is the son. The son promised to David in 2 Samuel 7 and Psalm 2. The son who will rule over all the nations. He is the one to whom an eternal throne is given and who is victorious over all his foes. He is the heir. And as the heir of God's rule, he is the fulfilment of God's promises to his people. And he brings the end time reign of God. So he brings what is final and full. And again, it says, Jesus is the firstborn. When God brings the firstborn into the world. Now, saying Jesus is firstborn is not saying he's the first in a series. This is saying he is preeminent, above and over all creation. Preeminent not just because of his achievement, but because of who he is, who he is uniquely. See there it says, let all God's angels worship him. But in speaking of the angels, he says he makes his angels spirits and his servants flames of fire. The world that it's spoken of in, in verse 6 is actually the world to come that we'll encounter in chapter 2, verse 5. It says here, all God's angels will worship him, worship Jesus as he enters into his reign in the new heaven and earth, as Jesus is exalted over all. And this, like 
verse 8 to come is declaring that Jesus is God, isn't it? I mean, in the book of Revelation, John attempts to worship the angel who brings him that revelation. But the angel replies, not once but twice, the references are there, don't do that. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers and sisters who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. Notice that. <coughs> where God alone is to be worshipped, where the angel insists God alone is to be worshipped and refuses worship, here it says the Son is worshipped by the angels, the most exalted of God's creatures, worshipped as God. While the angels are creatures, that's the point of verse 7, part of God's created order like the winds and the flames. But the Son, God and man, is to be worshipped. In fact, verse 8 reinforces that in case we missed it. About the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. This is the note that was struck in verse 3 where it said, The Son was the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. Here the author quotes Psalm 45, originally a wedding psalm that celebrated the wedding of the King, of the Messiah. And in this psalm, the Messiah, the Son, is addressed as God by God. The God who speaks through the prophets speaks this psalm. And he's addressed as God, while verse 9, distinguished from God. The Messiah, the Son, will be God with us and his rule will be like God's. He is a true Son who rules in righteousness and justice. And this rule is eternal, verse 10. In the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you remain the same and your years will never end. The author quotes Psalm 102, which in its original context spoke of the Lord, Yahweh. But here he applies it to Jesus, to the Son. Creation is through him, as well as for him. And in contrast to all created beings like angels, the Son remains forever. He is unchanging. And so his rule will also be eternal. So he will never be displaced by any created thing. He will always be able to do what he purposes. He will always be able to keep his promise. And he concludes his description of the son by quoting Psalm 110. To which of the angels did God say, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? This psalm again speaks of the incomparable superiority of the son. It speaks and stresses the son's exaltation over all, all his enemies made a footstool for his feet. It tells us that Jesus is the God-man, the Son of God, who is God and who rules over all, but the angels are servants. 
servants of God's purpose to save his people through his son. And quoting this psalm reminds us that this understanding of Jesus didn't start with the apostles. It's actually Jesus who first referred to this psalm, Matthew 22. He posed a question for the Pharisees. If he is David's Lord, how can he be David's son, he had said to them. Quoting Psalm 110. This understanding of Jesus' greatness, the apostles learned from Jesus. When the truth about Jesus is brought together, it's fast, isn't it? It actually takes some time to take in. And even then, we don't grasp it all. But he's not a creature, not even an exalted creature, but God, worthy of the worship given to God, the exalted heir and ruler over all, with an eternal and enduring reign. When all you know and see has gone, he will reign. And yet, he's a real man, a descendant of David, the true man, as we'll see next week, heir of the promises, creator of all, ruler of all, bringer of the end-time reign of God. Now, during uh, this last week, I was reading an account of a Holocaust survivor, Marion Schwartz, and she said this, There's one more thing I want to tell you. When I was in the labour camp in Germany, I went to the latrine, that's the toilet, in the middle of the night. It was the most beautiful starry sky. And it consoled me in a way that the war was going on and the moon and the stars were still around and during the day the sun was shining. There was madness all around. But I looked up and the sky had not changed. Life goes on. You might have had an experience like that yourself. For believers, being overwhelmed by the madness and the pride and the hostility of the world, Hebrews 1 is like looking at the stars. It gives you a vision that brings perspective, that brings reality back into focus, that shows you Jesus. It says, look at the sun, drink in his greatness, Grasp the greatness of the Son. Oh yes, and if you do that, you'll also grasp the greatness and the finality of God speaking in his Son and the need to hold on to that word which God has spoken through his Son. Verse 2, For since the message spoken through the angels was binding and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? This salvation which was first announced by the Lord was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. In verses 2 and 3, the author makes the comparison between the law and the gospel explicit. He says, think of that law where you learned about sacrifices and priests. Yes, it was given by angels, creatures, creatures who cannot compare to the greatness of the Son, who worship and serve the Son. Yet even so, that law was binding. It was expected to be obeyed by those who received it and disobedience received a just punishment. But the revelation and the salvation the Son brings to us by the word of God 
the word God has spoken in the Son is so much greater, isn't it? He says that the salvation is much greater. The author will actually bring out through the rest of the book how much greater is the salvation Jesus brings. He'll speak of an eternal rest, an eternal kingdom of being made holy, fitted for God's presence once and for all of our sin being dealt with once and for all. That salvation is greater. And so he says, what hope is there of escaping just punishment if we treat the gospel messages of no important? He's actually asking us to work from the lesser to the greater. God expected obedience to the revelation given by angels. He wouldn't let people treat his word given by angels with contempt. We see that over and over again in the Old Testament, don't we, in God's judgments on Israel. Well, he says, think how much greater the gospel word is. For a start, think how it came to us. First it says, the Son, the Lord, announced it. And that's true, isn't it? Jesus is the first preacher of the Christian gospel. He came saying, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Jesus is the first to announce that he brings salvation, that he brings the kingdom of God. Oh, yes, and that he welcomes all into it who will trust and follow him. Jesus is the first preacher of the gospel. And then this message was being confirmed to us by those who heard. Those ear witnesses brought us a true word and they testified to the resurrection that removes beyond doubt that the word Jesus spoke is the word of God. And they've truthfully transmitted that word, the gospel of our Lord Jesus, in their witness to Jesus, transmitted that word to us. And then he said, God himself also testifies to this word he has spoken in his Son. He's witnessed to the truth of Jesus by granting Jesus to perform signs and wonders, mighty works that points us to who Jesus is, works that take our breath away, raising the dead, giving sight to the blind, casting out demons, making the lame walk, stilling the storm. Oh yes, and he's witness to the truth of those first messages. He gave the apostles signs and wonders to work. They raised the dead, they made the lame walk. And he says God continues God continues to witness through the giving of the Spirit by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Gifts that he still gives generation to generation to all who believe the gospel. You can't doubt the surpassing greatness of this word from God in his son, this gospel word. The prestige of its speaker is far greater than that of angels. This is a God-confirmed word that fulfills and completes the word that he has spoken before through the prophets. Oh, and yes, this is the word that brings the salvation of the end, that brings the reign of God, that brings it at the cost of the death of God's Son. When you see that, <laughs> recognise, God will not let this word be treated with indifference and contempt. The message is so much greater and the consequences of drifting away from it are so much greater. We need to take this comparison to heart. Oh, and, and by the way, as we go through it, we also need to recognise why claims of subsequent angelic revelation, and they're made, did you know that? It was an angel 
that Muhammad said it appeared to him with a word from God. It was an angel, the angel Moroni, sadly but aptly named perhaps, who appeared to Joseph Smith in 1823. Every one of those so-called angelic revelations will have to relativise, marginalise and diminish Jesus if they're to be received. They have to do that because why would you accept what comes from the creature when you have what comes from the Son, spoken by God himself? Do you recognise in yourself a drifting, a neglecting of the salvation we've been given in Jesus? Are you alert to the signs in yourself and others? All of us, you know, have to be active to prevent drift in ourselves and each other, to make sure that we never treat the revelation we've received in Jesus with a contemptuous indifference, for drift is dangerous. Now, this book will tell us how to prevent that drifting. As we read on, it will urge us to keep listening to God speaking in his word, to keep turning from sin, to keep pressing on to maturity, oh yes, and to keep on meeting with each other, to encourage each other to do that. But above all, it says we need to get fixed in our mind the greatness of Jesus. No creature can compare with him. We need to get fixed in our minds the greatness of the revelation of God in Jesus. No creature's revelation can compare with his. And we need to get fixed in our minds the greatness of the salvation he brings. And the rest of the book will help us do that. No creature's salvation can compare. For no creature can save another eternally. No creature can make the sacrifice that the Son alone can make. We need to get the greatness of Jesus fixed in our minds. How? Meditate on the gospel. Take that list, take chapter 1. Meditate on it. It actually takes time to take in the vastness of the heavens. It takes time to take in the vastness, the greatness of Jesus. Meditate and give him thanks and praise him and worship him as he deserves. Let Jesus grow big in your mind and understanding and your heart. Let him start to grow to the size he has. And brothers and sisters, think this also. If it's disastrous to drift away from Jesus because salvation is found only in him, how tragic is it to have never heard of him, to have never had that greatness revealed to you? And so speak of Jesus to each other, but not just to each other. Speak of him to all. Speak of him as he is, the glorious eternal Son, the Creator, God with us, unchanging, the ruler of all the nations. Yes, and the man who took on flesh and blood to free us from death and who alone can give us life. Let's pray. Now, great God, sometimes we can listen to your word or hear it and it all just seems words, word upon word. Uh, we pray in your mercy that your spirit would take your word, living and active, 
and let it sink deep into our hearts and give us an understanding of what this word says. Not just a head knowledge, but we pray that we would know the greatness of your son, Jesus. That like the angels, we would delight to worship him. That we would know that his rule is forever. That he will never change. And that his is a rule of righteousness and justice. That we would know that nothing will stop him keeping his promise. Uh, We pray, help us to heed this word and to hold on to Jesus and never drift. We ask this in his name. Amen.